Yeah, I think one of the concerns there is just like our, our systems trust where we're like, it's, it's just the answer. It's not the answer. It's an answer that reflects a range of inputs. And I think when we're looking at how artificial intelligence and machine learning models are being implemented in a range of systems, and we need to ask ourselves questions about what were the inputs that really got us this output. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Hannah Nagel. She is a design researcher at Element AI. And today, we're going to jump into a new topic for us, AI. So uh, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and the unique role user research can play when learning about artificial intelligence and in particular, how we can think about AI and the ethical implications and how user research can help us to build moral ethical products. So thank you, Hannah, for joining us to talk about this very interesting topic. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've got JH here too. Yeah, I'm somewhere between embracing and being ready for our robot overlords and like wearing a tin <laughs> hat. So uh, <laughs> I'm figure out where on that spectrum I actually am. I think this would be a good combo. Sliding scale. Yeah. <laughs> Always. So let's jump in. User research in AI. We want to talk about some of the moral challenges that can present themselves when we think about letting those were they chaotic good or neutral evil or whatever sort of robots we're dealing with? Let's talk about what some of those challenges are and how user research can can help us to make sense of that. Perfect. So one thing that I would say when we're thinking about this concept is always the starting point for me is defining the ethics of what like a responsible uh, artificial intelligence system might be. And when we're looking at these systems, I find it helpful to think about operationalizing those ethics um, rather than philosophical discussion about morality. So how can we actually put into practice um, what it means to have kind of a responsible, ethical, fair system? I think one of the kind of initial challenges in this space is that the kind of standards and the best practices um, are very much still being developed. And because the technology has been moving so fast, it's been a collaboration between a private enterprise, the civic sector, governments, et cetera. And then academia is, of course, putting out uh, a lot of work around that as well. So coordinating those efforts to understand from those different viewpoints, what do we actually mean when we're talking about an ethical system? How do you use your research AI? <laughs> I know this is not like a monolithic thing, but what are practically, what are some of the things you do to figure out what the, what a good experience is going to be when it comes to this pretty nebulous, big data? We think of, on the one hand, these, I think we need robots to have something tangible to point to, but how do you, what are some of the methods and, and tools that you're using in your work as a design researcher? Yeah, great question. So first I would want to just differentiate something that I heard you both say where you're talking about robots. I want to differentiate between kind of the software and the hardware element here, which 
can go together, of course, when we're looking at maybe in-home devices, or there are some actual robots that are in hotels, for example, that will you know, deliver food to rooms, etc. And then we also have this kind of like software, the model component, which has its own unique set of challenges. And I'm going to focus more on kind of the model side or the software side of uh, artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. That makes sense. So I would say in terms of the differences and the challenges um, of researching AI use, as opposed to maybe other kinds of software or services, one thing that we're looking at that is similar, of course, is the kind of the needs and the pain points and the challenges of our users. And so we are using methods like observational interviews and kind of semi-structured interviews and design feedback or usability testing sessions. In the enterprise space, at least a lot of the folks um, that we are working with are already using some sort of enterprise system that is using AI. And so they do have some level of familiarity with how to use a new system. I think one of the one of the challenges of AI is that it can be hard to it's hard for users um, or for humans really to imagine using something that doesn't yet exist. And mm -hmm. so when you are presenting a new tool and asking, trying to get a sense of what their comfort level might be with it, how they might have unintended or unexpected uses of it, it can be challenging to get that kind of insights when the product isn't fully built and doesn't have all of the data behind it. I think one of the like famous examples is when they were going to launch the iPhone and Apple hired this external marketing company to send out this massive survey. And they're asking people like, would you like uh, a device that was like a camera and also a music player and could also access the internet? And people <laughs> were like, yeah, I don't, you don't really see the need for that. That doesn't really seem helpful. It's really hard to situate ourselves in an environment where we're thinking about a completely new tool. And it's also challenging for people to really understand the impact on their day-to-day -day life of how this tool might go about collecting and using data. And I think that's a big part of these ethical systems when we're thinking about it. If we're trying to get a sense of, for example, would you be interested in a tool that um, monitors the environment in your house and adjusts the temperature accordingly and then maybe lowers your electricity bill, uh, and that sounds great, when you're explaining that part of that is maybe monitoring personal health and tracking those records as well, that might be too far for some mm -hmm. people. And getting people to fully understand like the breadth and depth of um, the data inputs that are needed in order to get the data outputs that they want can be challenging to do. Yeah, it seems in addition to like to your point about it's hard to imagine using this recommender model or something and liking that it's giving you good song recommendations or something, it's hard to, for people to picture that. It seems hard for people to also recall if they, you know, enjoyed their interaction or something with, uh, I'm just thinking of like recommending stuff. If you're asking me about Netflix and you're like, hey, the last time you were on Netflix, did you like the recommended stuff? I'd be like, I don't know, maybe. Like, how do you, even when people are able to interact with a model, how do you engage with them to get the right insights about like their experience with it and, and whether there were issues ethical or otherwise? I'm going to go back to one of those challenges of data collection. When we're thinking about our metrics for an ethical or responsible system. We're trying to define those metrics and like the process for achieving those metrics and how we're going to validate if those targets are achieved. Wrapped up in that is this concept of transparency and explainability and accountability. And these are essentially ways of uh, showing a human user how the model how and why a model kind of reached a decision. There's a couple of different kinds of explainability and there are some 
they're in different levels of maturity in terms of how accurately a model can explain um, to a human user how and why an event was reached. And I think part of that is to go back to this recommendation question, how can we explain to our users why something was recommended and show them what might have happened if different pieces of data were collected or what pieces of data that's being combined with in order to make better or different decisions? What is the ethical imperative around transparency? Because similar sort of to some of the security things we talk about, there is this maybe trade-off between just tell me what I need to know and that's it because I'm trying to get something done and it's not going to be usable if I have to read your 30-page training manual on how you trained write the software to do whatever it's doing and maybe I don't really care. On the other hand, depending on the sort of software it is, maybe I really care how this decision was reached and I need to know if I trust it or not, if I can mess with the inputs myself to tweak the algorithm and what's happening there to make it really work for my use case. And I imagine for different use cases and different users, there's quite a variety on that spectrum in terms of how much do I want or need to know about what's really happening here. So how do you navigate all of that? Yeah, and I think that navigation is really a challenge that as an industry, we're really starting to confront. But I think that users who have different types of these systems are also starting to really be confronted with what is their level of comfort in what kind of data has been collected and how it's being used. I reference like a Nest as a system that is collecting data inside the home in order to make decisions about temperature. We've um, also been seeing that systems like Alexa or Google Home that are recording within the home. And what some folks are not realizing is that there is a human in the loop there. So there are folks, I forget the percentage, but it is a small percentage of these recordings, but there is a percentage of recordings which are actually sent to human transcribers. And that is to just keep the, the, the model on track and make sure that it's being accurate. And so there are and a certain percentage of conversations that is small, but there are a certain percentage of conversations that a real human is listening to. And maybe you were just talking about whether you need to order more milk, but maybe you were having a very intimate and heated discussion with a partner about something that is very private and that information has been recorded um, and no longer belongs to you. That data does not belong to you anymore and there's no privacy for that. A lot of folks... I think whether they don't work in tech necessarily, but even some in in this industry, like we don't always think about what our comfort levels are and what, what that trade-off is. What level of ease or kind of optimization are we willing to get in order to give access to our own data, whether that's our body temperature or conversations in the home that we might want to be private. What is our level in navigating that and understanding the impact? All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please.
It feels so tough because it feels like it's one of those things that's often like it's okay until it isn't, right? I don't mind you recording me because I like being able to add stuff to my grocery list really easily and, and play music in the kitchen and stuff until like you have a fight or something in your house and you're like, I didn't want that recorded. So like, how do you get people to think about it holistically to understand like where their comfort level is so that they can have more of a input or control over that? I think that this part of it, the input and the control, this is something that a lot of work needs to be done in our own industry to define those metrics and define those features. So when we're thinking about transparency, explainability, accountability, based on our principles that we are putting into practice in this, to what extent can we show our users in an explainable way, in an understandable way, what those trade-offs are? A lot of these models and systems are very complicated and convoluted. They have a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of teams that are working on these products. Some of them are consultants, some of them are outsourced. And so the accountability is really spread out over a wide network. And pinpointing where to start, I think, is also part of this process of like, how do we define and operationalize an ethical system? I think there's a couple kind of big examples over the last year or two when we look at, for example, the Boeing 2019 crash, um, or a couple of years ago, the Uber automated vehicle that crashed into a cyclist. And these are some really great examples of um, how we need to start thinking about accountability as part of this answer to who is responsible for explaining to users what information is being collected in order to get an output and what control the user has over different parts of a system. The stakes of bad usability in some of the cases you just mentioned are really high, adding a huge ethical component to making sure not only do users know how to use these tools and softwares powered with AI, but that they actually, in fact, do that and know where the metaphorical robot capabilities begin and end. And I think that's really interesting when you think about, right, human-computer interaction. It's this whole new level of that, of what exactly am I as a human responsible for now? What exactly are you the computer responsible for? And if everybody just throws their hands up, what am I the creator of the computer responsible for? Are there starting to be standards? You talked about some of the standards in terms of ethical outputs we can strive toward transparency and security and so on. Are there starting to be standards in terms of who is accountable? I think that we have a way to go before those standards are implemented in kind of a, a government space or a regulatory. Right. There's a really great paper by uh, Madeline Claire Eilish. Um, she wrote a paper called Moral Crumple Zones, Cautionary Tales and Human-Computer Interaction. And one of the things I love about this paper, which actually references that Uber crash, is who is responsible and what is the level of control that we are giving to humans versus systems. And from the kind of company standpoint, one of the things that is put forward in this paper is that the human operators or the human in the loop, they're being put into what uh, she frames as the moral crumple zone. So in a car, a crumple zone is that area that kind of absorbs the crash and you know, crumples up. And an argument that she's putting forward is that the responsibility for the impact of these systems is being perhaps unfairly put onto the human in the loop, the human operators, when it might behoove us to go back and take a look at the ways in which the system is actually, the system at large is actually responsible for a lot of these buildup of decisions and the humans really just at the end of it. 
And one of those kind of regulatory challenges is that systems are built by a lot of people. We have the execs that are signing off on things. We have the managers. We have people who are actually coding and designing it. In the case of the Boeing crash, for example, some of that code was built internally. Some of it was outsourced to consultants in other areas. And so there's this kind of convoluted sense of accountability that it can be easiest to just say, oh, it's the pilot's fault because they crashed the plane uh, and it was the human monitor's fault in the car because she wasn't paying attention. But what was the system doing to keep their attention? What was the system doing to show updates and statuses, et cetera? And what kind of responsibility does the code have or does the company have who produced that code in terms of inputs and outputs? Not to go like full trolley problem, but I think the thing that makes this so complicated is if like humans driving cars without any AI involved at all, right, get into accidents and there's really unfortunate outcomes there. And if we're able to say with some like high degree of confidence that we could lower the accident rate by adopting a lot more self-driving or assisted driving or whatever it is, there's, you could make a decent argument, right? There's a moral imperative to pursue that because it could actually help us be safer in like some aggregate way. But I guess the part that like maybe just feels challenging about that is if you do have all of these automated drivers out there and then a bug or an issue gets shipped, the ripple effect there can be enormous in a way that like not everybody's going to wake up tomorrow and be like a bad driver. And so I, I just don't like, how do you disconnect that part of it? Because it seems like there, that's, I think, the argument that people that really are proponents of this stuff tend to make, right, is that in aggregate, we maybe could be much safer in cars than we are today. So I think part of that is asking questions about how do we enable it to be safer? When we're looking at models that are, you know, being deployed in kind of these test environments, what is, how closely does that replicate a real life driving experience? When you are on the road, for example, um, in, in this Uber crash case, how often are you actually paying attention to literally everything going on the road? What is a human response time to a cyclist coming out in front of a car as opposed to the model response time of a cyclist coming out in front of a car? When you are driving a quote-unquote regular car, it only happens, um, unfortunately, that cyclists will come out on either side. And if you are not looking in that direction, uh, it's very easy to crash into a cyclist. So if we're just continuing down this path, really asking companies to break down that argument and show in a range of situations mm. um, in the dark, in the snow, when there are children fighting, when you reach for a coffee, in what ways is the system accounting for that range of human behavior and still maintaining that kind of consistent output of safety? And this is one too where it, it seems like user researchers have such a unique role to step in and... So user researchers don't get to just work on right whatever aspect of the project they want necessarily. But I imagine, let's use the plane example. There's dozens, hundreds, thousands of mini software releases and hardware decisions that go into making a plane like that. I can't even fathom a lot. <laughs> so it's not like one user researcher is just going to, I'm going to own go ahead and own this plane release. But it does seem like you could be in a unique position to think less myopically and more bigger picture in terms of things that might go wrong. On the other hand, it's a huge burden to put on someone to think through all those doomsday worst case scenarios. And yeah, it's just really interesting situation we're in here with 
all this to what you said early in the conversation, people can't imagine something that's never existed before. And that's happening every day, all the time with AI in ways big and small. And I think not to get philosophical, it's for being <laughs> practical here, but I don't have a question. I just think it's well, really well, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I have an idea maybe to try to get us in like to more concrete stuff. Is Let's imagine Aaron and I came up with some great idea that using a bunch of the sensors on a phone, the microphone and the step data and the gyroscope stuff, like we think we have a way to blend all those things together to um, make really smart health predictions that can be helpful to users. And so we're going to consume all this personal data off their device if they install our app. And we think we can give them really good recommendations about like when they should see a doctor or whatever it may be. And we're like, all right, let's go start this company. What are some of the things we should do up front or like questions we should be asking ourselves to avoid like some of the lurking ethical concerns that are like going down a path like that? Like what are the things you would tell us to get ahead of or, or to look out for? Yeah, so I think one of the uh, initial steps would be to think about what features, what kind of ethical and responsible features of your system you are going to plan for. So what kind of, how would you define ethical, responsible system performance? What kind of explainability will the model produce? How can you assess whether humans are understanding the different explainable options from the model? What kind of data is being collected and from what source? What kinds of biases might be built into that data collection process that are going to maybe impact the output of that model? Security, where is that data stored? Who is it shared with? And how are users understanding what that data collection and storage kind of looks like? And then we have more the operational side of the metrics. So we're mentioning like the metrics for the features, the process for achieving, how you're going to validate if those targets are achieved. Those are, I think, some of the starting points that we would want to think about. One of the one of the challenges I think across the board is, of course, data, which is really like the one of the fundamental layers of these models. Humans construct these frameworks for collecting data, and so there are oftentimes issues with the data sets that have already been collected, and understanding the extent of the bias in that data, I think, is one initial step as well. There was a British healthcare company, uh, I think it was like, a, it was like a medical chat um, company, which I'm forgetting the name of right now. And it would essentially one of the screener questions would be like, what is your gender? And then you would describe your symptoms and it would um, tell you whether or not to go, you know, to a doctor, the emergency room, etc. And because there's so much bias in medical care, systemically, one of the input, one of the outputs that we saw there was um, a deep divisive gender bias, where men would describe a certain set of characteristics and be told they're having a heart attack, whereas female patients were told that they, you know, just needed to calm down, the hysterical, basically. And the only difference there was the the gender marking. That's just one, one example of how biases were living in a system, um, a social system that has deep systemic biases built into its operation. And the ways in that's reflected in the data that we collect has a, a range of impacts now that we are asking models to be responsible for some of the uh, decisions that um, a person might make. We can't offload some of that responsible task to the model when it's consuming data that we produced as a biased system. Is it ethical for AI to try to overcompensate for human bias? So it's similar to the idea that 
an AI enabled smart car can save lives and drive better than humans can drive. That sounds pretty good. We know that humans are subject to all sorts of cognitive biases, to accidental or intentional racism, sexism, et cetera. And so those things, we see those in, in the training and the machine learning of et cetera. So if we say, okay, as a society, let's try to eradicate all of that human bias from is that the right thing to do and can that be done and can you is is that somehow bad in an unforeseen way that to suppose that there's a neutral position versus a biased one and who would get to decide that yeah that's a great question i think on one hand i would want to point out that not all biases are um damaging or bad mm-hmm. um Uh, You know, bias simply means being uh, slanted to one angle or another, and that sometimes those can be good and have a positive impact. So part of this work is determining what is the impact that we want to have and is our current structure getting us there? In terms of asking models to identify and account for those biases, part of the work on our side is noting the biases that we have. The model cannot necessarily identify biases that we're not aware of either. I think one non-AI example of this to try and take a deep dive into this concept is that Boston Orchestra example. And then I think the 1960s, I forget the name of this experiment. I should have pulled it open before, but essentially there was a challenge where orchestras were overwhelmingly male and that may or may not you know, be a problem. So the first step is to say, do we want orchestras that are all male? Or do we want orchestra which are composed of the most talented players? If answer B, then the next step is to assess whether or not our data inputs, so like our applicants, are being um, assessed correctly. And so essentially what they did in that experiment was to bring in a series of kind of blind approaches. So first they put up that screen so they couldn't see the applicant, but there is still that auditory cue of the heels clicking on the stage. And once they brought in the double blind layer, putting a carpet down, I think something like 35% more female applicants were brought in, which is actually quite a high amount um, because there's not that many new orchestra members being brought in every year. So that's one example and a real life example of their goal was to have the best inputs possible, so the best players, because of their own biases towards probably white men, they were ending up with an orchestra which was composed of a bias which actually didn't reflect their goal. And so they had to start breaking down and identifying their own biases before they could kind of rearrange their data input in terms of like applicant stream. And that's something that we need to do as well when we're looking at models that are doing a range of things, assessing creditworthiness, determining where to roll out a feature. All of those things are going to be, all those models are going to be drawing from data, uh, which is collected from biased systems. We're looking at things like creditworthiness. A lot of that uh, has been shaped by racist practices um, in both the United States and Canada around who was allowed to own homes and who has been systemically uh, denied access to that. And when that's tied to things um, like, for example, Amazon rolling out their Prime feature, and they were using historical kind of zip code data, which really reflected areas where Blacks weren't allowed to own homes in America. And so we're seeing this kind of consumer feature that is based on 
seemingly like innocent quote unquote data, um, but that data is actually really rooted in long-standing systemic biases and discrimination. And so we have to take a couple steps back and say, what how would we define ethical here? How would we define a non-discriminatory approach? And then how does our own team play into this? How does our data sourcing play into this? And then what can we do differently? Yeah, there's so many layers. I feel like the thing that for me that makes the machine learning model stuff like giving them control over who's qualified to be in the orchestra or whatever is not that like we're perfect. You just gave a bunch of awesome examples of how flawed humans are at these same things is that it feels like the risk of um, a model or something like machine learning based for it to be like a runaway freight train where like it takes a bias and like really amplifies it or really goes nuts just feels like at a different scale than maybe what humans could do. So like humans, while we're very flawed for all the reasons you just pointed out, are like maybe slower both to fix things or make them worse. Whereas it feels like the machine making that distinction about who should be in the orchestra or whatever could like really accelerate it for good or worse. Does that seem like a fair concern? Yeah, I think one of the concerns there is just like our, our systems trust where we're like, it's it's just the answer. It's not it's not a biased answer and not understanding how the inputs are, are getting us to there. Look, one thing, for example, that I see a lot on Twitter, for example, in like the Twitter fights that happen um, is that you'll see people try and back up an argument with global warming, for example, by what they found in a Google result. And there is, it seems a, a deep misunderstanding that the results they're seeing are actually tailored to their own history and preferences. It's not the answer, it's an answer that reflects a range of inputs. And I think when we're looking at how artificial intelligence, these machine learning models are being implemented in a range of systems, and we need to ask ourselves questions about what were the inputs that really got us this output, and that's really the explainability portion and the human human interpretability, hard word to say, the ethical practices, putting into practice what an ethical and fair system is. Yeah. So not to ask the where's the world going predict <laughs> predict it question, but yeah, where do you think this is going? And it's the emerging fields are always, I don't know, it's really slow and then all at once, right? We've been talking about the self-driving car for a while now and it seems to have slowed down. And I don't, I don't know when we're all going to be not driving autonomous cars, but how are user researchers getting more comfortable with figuring out how to work with AI technology? Is it because it's new and evolving going to continue to be that way even more so for the foreseeable future? Or Yeah, I think one thing that I'm starting to see more is that um, as design researchers, we're looking more at the, a holistic sense. So systemically, what does it take to get a fair and accountable system um, in place? I think the car driving example is actually really great where five years ago people were saying we're all going to be in these self-driving cars and now it's looking more like it will be long-haul trucks for example a part of that is what is the environment that allows that to be safer and really breaking down these cars are then driving on long stretches of highway where they don't need to navigate around a lot of different objects and so the safety there is clear 
Whereas if you're in an urban environment um, where you're navigating around different cars and bicycles and traffic, that's maybe not an ideal environment for for an automated car or self-driving car. And I think this kind of holistic sense, like what, not just our users, the individual user, but what are the characteristics of their environment that they operate in, whether that's other people, other systems, either habits, et cetera, what what are the characteristics of that environment that we really need to account for um, when we're thinking about building and researching these systems? Yeah, your job seems hard. (laughs) That's like my main, (laughs) it seems really hard to to juggle all this stuff. Um, But it seems really important and it seems really interesting. So I'd imagine it's very satisfying, but it seems so many different factors to juggle and balance all at once. Yeah, I think in my dream world, which I, I think will become a lived reality soon, like this work will be shared among a range of expertise. So there will be design researchers, but really doing close collaborative work with other kind of system specialists, social system specialists, etc. As we flesh out those unknown unknowns and turn some of them into known unknowns, I think it will be taking a range of collaborations for us to deliver these systems that have an, an ethical and fair impact. Yeah. And so much of this is applicable to not just AI. And we didn't really get into what is AI, but as software eats the world, everything seems to have a twinge of AI in it. These kinds of questions, ethical imperatives will become relevant to user researchers everywhere. And to your point, to cross-functional teams of well-meaning humans who are dependent on technology increasingly. Yeah, I think a lot of our decisions, when we're using a certain piece of software in order to enable decisions, that output, that final decision is based on other decisions that are maybe outputs from different models. So for example, you might use Google Maps to get to a place and then use a different application to make another decision. And so trying to look at that framework of applications and understand the inputs and outputs at different points that you want to focus on, I think is part of the, one of the challenges, but also one of the exciting things about this field. Yeah, no, it seems like there's so much excitement in terms of if you're able to actually shift some of this stuff in the right direction, the impact and the scale is huge and uh, and super exciting and and hopefully a, a real net positive. Yeah, I think so. I am really hopeful when I'm seeing a lot of really a lot of cool uh, articles are being written, I think, both from use cases from in practice and also academia. And I'm also seeing a lot of collaboration between kind of enterprise and academia that I think is really important. So it'll be really cool to see where that goes as well. We'll be here waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully this episode gets picked up by whatever algorithm recommendation. Get up in that viral loop. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>